A hostage crisis in the Sahara Desert unfolds today, Thursday, January 17th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The hostage crisis in Algeria takes a turn for the worse, and the stakes are high for governments involved. Once the smoke clears and we begin to see what's actually happened, the British government, the US government, the Japanese government, they're going to have a lot of questions to ask the Algerians. They're also going to have to answer to their own public if British nationals have died, if American nationals have died. We'll have the latest plus more on the conflict in neighboring Mali, where the United States is reluctant to get involved. It's a conflict in which the United States has an interest, but not an overriding interest. And later, a tale of garlic smuggling on a massive scale. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's been a very confusing day for anyone following the hostage crisis in Algeria. Even the White House is still trying to find out exactly what's going on at the natural gas facility attacked by militants yesterday. Here's President Obama's spokesman, Jay Carney. We're certainly concerned about reports of loss of life and are seeking clarity from the government of uh, of Algeria. What's certain is that earlier today, Algerian government forces launched an operation to try to free the hostages, some of whom are Americans. It apparently began when troops on helicopters fired on a militant vehicle convoy that was carrying some of the captives. Algerian state television said four of the 41 foreigners supposedly being held were killed, as well as some of the militants. Other hostages were reportedly freed. The militants earlier claimed that as many as 34 of the hostages had died. The Algerian government says the operation is over, but the conflicting accounts continue. BBC Arab Affairs editor Sebastian Usher has been following the crisis from London. It started early-ish in the morning in Algeria. We had confirmation of that when the British Prime Minister David Cameron, a statement was issued through his spokesman saying that he had not been informed of the operation before it started. He only heard about it at 11.30 GMT when he then spoke to the Algerian authorities to find out what was going on. Right. Now, one report said the militants who took over the gas plant had placed explosive devices throughout the complex and were even threatening to blow the complex up. Any confirmation of that? There's been no confirmation of that. I mean, one of the things that is understandable is that the governments which are involved in this, the British government, the US government, the Norwegians and so on, the French, and also the companies have been staying very tight-lipped. I mean, they're saying from certainly from the British perspective, that this is for the security of their nationals who are there. So they have not been giving any information, if they have it, on that sort of detail. Now, I gather the Algerian interior minister denied that the militants could have come from Libya right across the border. But this is a large scale and brazen operation, no doubt. So who do you think is behind this? Who's, Who's funding this? The indications at the moment are that Al-Qaeda-linked group is involved in this. The man who has been pinpointed as a leader of a group is a man called Belmokta, who has been with Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb for some time. We have reports that he's actually either of his own volition or been forced out of it recently. But this 
attack seems still to have the hallmarks of an al-Qaeda-linked group. They have a lot of financial backing from the fact that they, for many years, have been as much a criminal organisation as a terrorist organisation. They have, as far as we know, gained millions of dollars from smuggling both in drugs and in cigarettes. So they don't have a shortage of funding. You mentioned earlier that uh, British Prime Minister David Cameron was only informed of the Algerian army's operation by phone after it had begun. Uh, another report, unconfirmed, claims the U.S. offered Algeria assistance, but uh, they turned it down. It really seems that the Algerians want to be the only ones holding the reins here. That's a difficult question away. I mean, David Cameron, before this all happened, had made a point of saying that the British were allowing the Algerians to take leadership in this. There may not have been much choice, but he chose his words carefully to look as if Britain certainly was accepting of that. What is coming out, though, is that the Algerians seem to have gone in without keeping all these different governments which have their people there informed of what was going on, that maybe Algeria may have put its interests ahead of everybody else because what they want to show is that this attack, which is unprecedented in this vital area of Algeria where the gas and oil is produced, will not be allowed to stand. They stand, the Algerians, to have a terrible economic hit if this now builds up into a new security problem in which foreign oil companies are going to and gas companies are going to feel that they have to pull their foreign nationals out of there. So the way this is going to go once the smoke clears and we begin to see what's actually happened, the British government, the US government, the Japanese government, they're going to have a lot of questions to ask the Algerians. They're also going to have to answer to their own public if British nationals have died, if American nationals have died. David Cameron, uh, President Obama are going to have to answer to their own people of how they let that happen. The BBC's Arab Affairs editor, Sebastian Usher, thank you. Cheers. The Islamic militants in Algeria claim they took the hostages as a reprisal for the French intervention in Mali. The fighting there continues with French troops now on the ground to try and stop the Islamist rebel advance. The Obama administration has promised to support the French operation in Mali. The U.S. is providing intelligence and considering other ways to offer logistical support. But one thing Washington won't entertain is sending in American troops. George Friedman is CEO of Stratfor, a global intelligence company based in Texas. He's written an article called Avoiding the Wars That Never End. Friedman says there are good reasons why the Obama administration isn't getting the U.S. more deeply involved in Mali. First, it's a conflict in which the United States has an interest, but not an overriding interest. Certainly, the United States does not want to see Islamists in control of the country. But other countries also have an interest in that. Secondly, it's not clear that it's going to be very easy to deal with this question. And for the United States, you have to calculate the risk of engaging yourself in another war that doesn't have a clear outcome or any terminal point, as opposed to uh, letting someone else do it. But do you see the French as efficiently handling the situation? And do you see a, a scenario in which the U.S. might have to help them? There are ways in which to help them doesn't, doesn't put boots on the ground. As to whether they're efficiently handling the situation, we've noticed that we ourselves have had problems efficiently handling situations like this. The nature of this situation is that it can't be efficiently handled. Therefore, the question is who's going to bear the burden? And the United States is moving back to the idea of burden sharing, an idea that was very important during the Cold War. In the past, the United States has borne most of the burdens and endured many of the criticisms. 
In this particular case, the United States is basically saying the French have a greater interest. They're going to have to carry the burden, and the United States will share the burden with intelligence sharing and logistics and other things. But this is not going to be one in which the French will be able to simply stand back and benefit without risking. Is this a reality, though, that the White House has accepted that this is, you know, chasing these terrorists, chasing al-Qaeda, whoever they are? It's a game of whack-a-mole, so let's not get involved in Mali because they'll just pop up somewhere else? I think it's far more than the administration, the White House. I think this is the United States, the American public, has come to a realization that as terrible as 9-11 was and as appropriate as the response was, turning it into what the military called the long war, or what I call the wars that never end, are not in the national interest. At some point, others have to do it, and at some point you simply have to accept the risk simply because you don't have the means of eliminating it. Now, as for Mali, uh, Malians welcome the French intervention. There are French flags being waved uh, around the capital, Bamako. Do you think this diminishes the international influence of the U.S.? It diminishes the international responsibilities of the U.S. It enhances uh, its influence. In other words, allowing various local powers to decide whether the United States is going to intervene, American power is held in reserve to be used when it needs to be used. So I would make the argument that it enhances American power in the long run, and that power does not consist of being the first responder, it consists of being the decisive responder. And the United States intervening in countries where it cannot be decisive, that weakens American power. George Friedman is CEO of Stratfor, a global intelligence company based in Austin, Texas. There's a link to George's article at theworld.org. George, good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Good speaking to you. Malians in the U.S. are watching and talking about the events unfolding back home, and there's no shortage of opinions, especially when it comes to potential U.S. involvement. The world's Alex Galifant spoke with some expats in New York's Harlem. In this West African lunch spot, there are lots of conversations going on. But Mali's current predicament is at the top of the list. Zainab Mega works at the restaurant. She's 23 and plans to study marketing when she returns to the Malian capital, Bamako. She's only been here six months. For her, it's a no-brainer that American forces should get involved. Yeah, yeah, of course. The Mali need the, the Americans' help. What kind of help? The, the, the uh, material? Material, yeah, the material helps. Le soldat? Soldat too. The soldat too. I see United States help uh, some, anybody, wherever. Pourquoi pas le Mali? Why not Mali? Yeah, why not Mali? He can help the Mali too. Alassane Yara supports American involvement too, but not necessarily U.S. troops on the ground. He doesn't think the fighting is going to last that long. This war will be soon over. It's going to be soon, about a couple of days. Yara is also from Bamako. He owns a car rental company here, but he's still got a lot of investments in Mali, and so he's grateful for France's military intervention. The action was great, and this 21 century, I don't think so. any people should be allowed to, to take another country over and bring the Sharia. And the Sharia is a barbary, and we don't support it. It's an evil stuff, we don't support that in Mali. Now, Yara has no problem with France, the former colonial power, sending its troops back to his country. Well, for me, it's not strange. We're not talking about colonization right now. We are friends. 
We'll be there to get a long time. They have a responsibility. Exactly. They have a responsibility. They cannot see Mali going down without taking any action. Today's Mali. Tomorrow is be Senegal, is be Burkina, is be Africos, is be my country, Guinea, too. This is the owner of the restaurant, Sariba Sako. He left Guinea 15 years ago, but he's worried about radical Islamists growing in strength in the region. He says everyone should be. This problem is not only an Africa problem, it's a European and American problem too. Some people say that if the United States becomes more involved in Mali, then it'll be only more of a target for Islamists. It'll make the problem bigger for the United States. Uh, I'm not sure because it's not important like Afghanistan. And America have power, you know. He needed to give help. Amenata Kamara, a 26-year-old human resources student from Mali, has a different take. She's worried about Mali's government as much as Islamists. Corruption is a problem, and everybody knows corruption is a big problem in Africa. It's not only in Mali. And that's a bigger problem than Islamists taking over the north of Mali. Yes, because they took the north of the country when they know that the government of the country was weak. So it's a priority today to deal with them. But I think after dealing with the terrorists, they have to deal with people in the government. She's thinking long term about Mali's future. Her compatriot, Alassane Yara, is thinking about the next few weeks, about what he'll do if the fighting hasn't ended. I'm ready to take, a, to, to take a action. I'm ready to go to the front line to, to fight. Yes, I am. You serious? I'm very serious about it. I need to drop it, everything behind me. Sitting here and look at my country go down, I can't take it. So I'm ready to go on the front line to fight. Alison Yara already has a business trip to Mali planned. He's going in the next few weeks. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant in Harlem. This afternoon, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said the United States is providing some assistance to the French operation in Mali. U.S. trainers are being deployed, she said, and will be on the continent by the weekend to assist the forces of friendly African nations preparing for deployment. Clinton also said the U.S. was ready to fund any airlift that those African troops may require. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. History is being made in Saudi Arabia this month. For the first time, women will be a part of the Shura Council. That's the closest thing Saudi Arabia has to a parliament. The council's members are not elected. They're appointed by the king, and they don't pass or enact laws. They advise the monarch. Still, the decision by King Abdullah to appoint 30 women to the Shura Council is a big deal for many Saudis. One of the council's first female members is Thuraya Al-Arayed. She's a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and worked for many years in corporate planning. She says she wasn't really surprised by her appointment. I uh, kind of anticipated the possibility because a lot of people mentioned it to me Hmm. that they think I would be one of the people selected. You're one of 30 women now on the Shura Council, and that raises female membership to 20% of the total council. By comparison, in the U.S. Congress, women make up 18% of the representatives. So tell us, how significant is this change, and how will it change Saudi Arabia? The important 
thing to remember here is it is the first time, so we didn't grow little by little. The king wanted a good representation from the very start. He's a devout supporter of women, so he didn't want to have two, three faces there just to please others who complain that there are no women. So 30 from the very beginning. As you said, it's 20%, which Mm. is a great start. You say the king, King Abdullah, is a devout supporter of women, but I think the perception around the world is that the royal family in Saudi Arabia are are not great supporters of women's rights. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, you are. Generalizations are always wrong. The royal family, which is, what, 5,000, 6,000 strong, a lot of them are supportive. A lot of them were educated outside. Uh, Our uh, foreign minister was educated in Princeton. They all understand the need for moving with time, but also the need for keeping the society stable. You know, you can't bring change and bang them on the head with it and expect it to succeed. It has to grow roots. Right. Having said that, I, I would also say that in our case, it has been proven that a decision from above is always more successful than leaving it for people to haggle about. And in the end, you know, it takes forever because people never agree. Well, speaking of support, 50 clerics held a public protest against King Abdullah's decision. How much influence do they have to change this edict? And I think they try their best. Their opinion is they don't want women in the shura. They, their opinion is also to keep their own privileges and Uh, their hold on decision-making. And having decided not to meet them or allow them in, they were stopped at the checkpoint, Mm. indicates the direction in which we are going. The the country has to make its own decisions, you know, in the light of what it, it needs, not in the light of what one group of the society needs. Do you think these clerics are a thing of the past and that Saudi Arabia is inevitably moving in this direction? Again, again we are generalizing. When mm. we say clerics, it's a huge group. There were some that blessed the steps of the king and his decision, and you know they publicly announced that this is a good step and they are all for it. But I think you know when it gets to this point, you have to also put your foot down and show that there is a government that decides. Right. Since the Shura Council does not have legislative power to enact laws, what kind of influence are you hoping women will have on how laws will be shaped in Saudi Arabia? Well, remember, we are talking about the past. This new session that is coming may hold also different powers for the legislative side of the Shura. I don't know. But the anticipation is things are moving in a very positive direction, and the Shura will be given more chances, you know, to play a stronger role than it has done before. And you could tell by the kind of people that were selected. Now, excuse me for being one of them, but even if I wasn't, I would say that the ones that were selected are really excellent. Mm. Let me ask you about one issue that's uh, important in Saudi Arabia, and that is uh, a lot of the youth, this bulge between 18 and 35, especially men who feel that they didn't get part of that oil revenue that their government promised them. How how do you deal with that? That's a really crucial problem, isn't it? You know, one of the messages I always try to remind them is you you can't expect to be just sitting and somebody puts what you need in your lap. You need to have initiative. Mm. Now, for a long time, the government was the prime employer in the public sector. Then the public sector got saturated. 
and the private sector started importing the you know work, working hands and brains from outside because they're cheaper now the youth complained because they want a job as their parents did you know very pleasant very good pay but things have changed economically just like you you in the US you know with the economics now the economy is not as good as it used to be. We have a great revenue, but we have a big country with a lot of services which are provided by the government. Now, we need to, ha- to change a little bit of our perception and attitude of our role in it as citizens. You need to look for different solutions, entrepreneurship, uh, teamwork, have your own business. Start with a small job and grow up with it. And then, you know, we look at the private sector and ask them to be less uh, selfish. Think of the needs of the country and not just of their own profits. Right. There are so many angles that you look at. And if you don't see them all together and work on all different fronts, finding the right solutions or the optimum solutions will take forever. Dr. Thuraya Al-Arayed, one of the new female members of the Shura Council in Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much for speaking with us. You're most welcome. Today's GeoQuiz might give you bad breath. Garlic has been with us for thousands of years. It was used as a seasoning in ancient Egyptian, Greek, and Indian cultures. It's said to have originated in Central Asia, though, and now it's grown everywhere. But can you tell us where most of the world's supply of garlic comes from right now? It's not Gilroy, California, though it does call itself the garlic capital of the world. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, more than 18 million tons of garlic are grown each year in one country. That's more than 75% of the global supply. All that garlic generates big profits, and some of those profits are illegal. Authorities in Sweden say they've cracked a multi-million dollar garlic smuggling scheme. We'll hear more about this illegal trade when we come back with the answer in just a bit. is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, how an obscure Spanish punk band came face to face with Joe Strummer of The Clash in a bar in Granada. This, you know, the punk rock warlord as he self-styled. And uh, he ends up uh, going to rehearsals and becomes the producer for their second album. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. President Obama's inauguration is on Monday. The White House says the president is still working on his address. But Obama is likely to present his vision for the country over the next four years. 
Immigrant rights advocates hope that includes a path to citizenship for the estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants currently living and working in the U.S. That may be hard to get past conservatives in Washington who call it an amnesty for rule breakers. The world's Jason Margolis caught up with some grassroots activists in Texas to hear their plans to get immigration reform done soon. Carlos Duarte is the guy with the bullhorn, the one who shouts inspirational messages about justice and equality for immigrants. He works with the nationwide group Mi Familia Vota, or My Family Votes. Since November, Duarte has stopped yelling at rallies. He's now talking with other community organizers in air-conditioned rooms. Ahora nosotros estamos aquí en Texas. Entonces aquí en, te, en la zona de Houston en particular hay eh, cuatro congresistas republicanos. Duarte says there are four Republican congressmen in Houston and two Republican U.S. senators from Texas that they must reach. He switches between Spanish and English as he's talking. Unless they understand that they will be without a job in the next election, unless they understand that they are not going to sign an immigration reform that it's really useful for the community as, as a whole. The people in the room nod their heads. They see their time as now. Paloma Martinez with the Service Employees International Union, a powerhouse in America, sums up the mood here. The Latino voice has come out, we made an impact, and people have to respond, right? Our elected officials have to respond. And I think people will get fired up if we make that really clear that it's possible, it's within reach. We have a vision and we can do it, right? Latinos flexed their muscles last November. Some 12 million voted, and the turnout went overwhelmingly for President Obama. Immigration reform was a top issue for many Latino voters, and they rejected Mitt Romney's approach, his focus on border enforcement and self-deportation. Carlos Duarte says that Latinos must make politicians who sided with Romney know that they'll lose their elections, too, if their positions on immigration reform don't change. We need to call members of Congress, we need to participate in rallies, we need to register to vote, and we need to vote. Because unless they understand that we are going to make them accountable through the vote, they are not going to be passing immigration reform. But that's a strategy that's been used for years now, with little to show in terms of significant progress on immigration reform. This time, though, with the Latino vote proving strong, activists hope there will be a payoff. After the meeting, I spoke with Cesar Espinosa, who moved to Texas from Mexico City when he was four. I have been living in the country as an undocumented immigrant for the last 23 years, and I've been uh, doing immigrants' rights work for the last 12 years. Espinosa now runs an organization called Immigrant Families and Students in the Struggle. Like many immigrant rights organizers, Espinosa himself can't vote, but he can rally others to vote for his interests. We have people power. We can move thousands and thousands of people to rallies, to marches, and things like that. Because when, when you can't vote, you vote with your feet, you march. Immigrant rights advocates are planning to make their presence felt in Washington in the coming months. Espinosa says they also want politicians to feel their presence in the pocketbook. Obviously, they have people that donate to them, and we just target everybody. We cast a wide open net, and we... From their funders, we approach them and we tell them this is what immigration reform is. This is who we are. We share our stories with them so that they know that we're not ghosts, that we're actual people who are contributing, who have roots here, who have business interests here. But will all of this and the recent momentum be enough to get immigration reform done? It depends on your timeline, 
says political scientist Mark Jones at Rice University in Houston. In the short term, uh, there is no real consequence for alienating Hispanics, at least outside of a few marginal swing districts. In the long term, though, the Republican Party's failure to uh, retain and win a large share of the Hispanic vote will spell doom for the party as a viable national force. That could be about eight to ten years from now, by Jones's estimate. But are Republican Party leaders willing to think that far ahead? Mark Jones says it's hard to make the case that the party is in crisis mode, especially in red state Texas. Because they look to see that they're winning statewide elections by more than 10 points. They have close to two-thirds of the seats in the Senate and the state house. And on the national level, you'd be hard-pressed to find more than a half-dozen Republican uh, members of the U.S. House who could possibly lose their seat due to Hispanics voting against them. On the flip side, consider the Republican politician who aligns with Democrats on immigration reform. They risk being challenged by a more conservative primary opponent come the midterm elections. But some Republicans are taking that risk. Take Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who supports immigration plans quite similar to President Obama's. He's thinking long-term. By many accounts, he has White House aspirations. Immigrant activists I met, like Esther Reyes, say they're not focused on party lines. She directs the Austin Immigrant Rights Coalition. Our faith is not in any political party. Absolutely, we can be used as pawns. Any community can be used as a pawn, you know, as far as politically. And for that reason, um, our strength is not in a political party's promises. Our strength is in our community. She says, look at any major social movement in history. No lawmaker just wakes up one day and says something like, you know what, today I'm going to give women the right to vote. Change will be through the groundswell, through constant pressure. The question is, Will immigrant rights activists be able to create enough of it? For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Houston. In California, the fight is intensifying against maritime smugglers who bring in illegal immigrants and drugs from Mexico. The stakes went up last month when suspected smugglers killed a U.S. Coast Guard officer during a confrontation. But it's not just the Coast Guard that comes across the smugglers and their boats. Jill Replogle from the public radio collaboration Fronteras has a story. The sun is dipping below the horizon off San Diego's ocean beach. A tow truck is backed up to a steep cliff that falls 40 feet down to a tiny cove. It's trying to pull a small fishing boat from the sand, the kind of boat you might see out trolling for yellowtail. The boat is very stuck. Captain Eric Lamb and his boat rescue team have been working on it for 12 hours, and they're not even close. Actually, at the time, we were in high tide, and the boat ended up going uh, pretty much all the way underwater several times and filled up with sand and then got buried in the sand. So it's been quite a fiasco to get it out today. Lamb works for a company called Vessel Assist. It's like AAA for boats. U.S. Customs and Border Protection contracts out companies like it to pick up abandoned boats along California's coast. Often smugglers carrying illegal immigrants or drugs abandon the boats. Law enforcement agents and people who work with them, like Lamb, have seen a spike in illegal traffic here. 2012 set a record, with more than 200 documented smuggling attempts between the U.S.-Mexico border and California's central coast. Lamb has dug out, towed, and trailered many of the boats left behind. Uh, in the last nine years with this company, we've, we've pulled probably well over 150 boats off the beach up and down between here and uh, L.A. And he's not just pulling boats off the beach. Ironically enough, some smugglers actually call Lamb's company for a tow when they've broken down or run out of gas at sea. 
At a dock where Vessel Assist stores rescue boats, Lamb shows me some of the gear he uses for towing. To the D-ring, if it's a small boat. He says he can tell when a client is in the smuggling business. If you get a boat that calls you at three in the morning and they're uh, five miles off of Imperial Beach. That's just north of the U.S.-Mexico border. There's not a lot of people riding uh, at three in the morning out off IB. You know, normally they've come up from Mexico and and so when you get there, you start getting all the information together and then you pass it on and see, see what happens. In other words, he alerts the authorities. Lamb has also seen smugglers get more sophisticated. Open-hold boats called pangas used to be the vessel of choice. Smugglers would typically take off from Mexico's border state of Baja, California, race up the coast at night, and drop off their cargo, drugs, or people on deserted beaches. At a boatyard near the Mexican border, a worker slices through the fiberglass hull of a captured smuggling boat. The word Ensenada, the port city in Baja, California, is printed on it in hand-drawn letters. A kid's life jacket and a Fanta bottle filled with water suggest it was used to smuggle immigrants. Soon workers here will shred the boat and dismantle the motor. Not too long ago, these abandoned or seized pangas were auctioned off, but the same boats showed up again and again. So now authorities just chop them up. They've managed to uh, just about deplete the fleet in, uh, in Ensenada. But smugglers have retooled their strategy, too, and are now using other boats, including craft normally used for pleasure or yachting, to run illicit business. And they're getting bolder, going farther out to sea and further up the coast, dropping their goods or people hundreds of miles up California's coast. For law enforcement, it's getting more dangerous. In December, off Santa Barbara's coast, suspected smugglers rammed a U.S. Coast Guard boat and killed Senior Chief Petty Officer Terrell Horn III. The smugglers fled but were captured off San Diego. Their trial is set for February. Lieutenant Commander Matthew Jones oversees the Coast Guard's enforcement in San Diego. His crew patrols the coast daily with boats and helicopters like this one, searching for suspicious activity. Jones says Horn's death hasn't altered how the Coast Guard operates. I don't think it's any more dangerous than it was before. Um, BMC Horn's death was a tragedy, uh, an absolute tragedy, and uh, certainly makes us all re-examine what we're doing to make sure we're doing it safely and effectively. But that's not so for Eric Lamb, who works with that company Vessel Assist, which helps U.S. officials rescue boats. As maritime smuggling increases, he finds his business increasingly nerve-wracking, especially when he approaches boats stranded at sea. Because I'll be out there, no one else, just me, and quite honestly, we realize now there's nothing stopping them from you know, shoot me, throw me over the side, load everything in my boat, and they can go anywhere they want. Still, Lamb says he loves his job, and he'll stick with it, even if he doesn't know what might come next. For The World, I'm Jill Replogel in San Diego. Well, that's an appropriate musical segue to get us to Granada, Spain. This week, authorities there said that a small square near the city's famous Moorish landmark, the Alhambra, will be renamed. The idea is to celebrate the life and music of someone many in town consider an icon. The world's Clark Boyd reports. It's not often that British punk rockers name drop a place like Granada or sing about the Spanish Civil War. Spanish songs in Andalusia, the street inside in the days of 39. 
That's Spanish Bombs from The Clash's best-known album, London Calling. It's filled with punk masterpieces. This track really stands out. I mean, Spanish poets aren't your usual punk rock fare. But The Clash's leader, Joe Strummer, well, by the time London Calling came out in 1979, he had developed an affinity for Spain, or at least for a woman from Spain. Barcelona-based filmmaker Nick Hall is currently working on a documentary about Strummer's Spanish connections. It goes back to his pre-Clash days, squatting in, in the west of London. He ended up sharing a squat with two sisters from southern Spain, and one of them became his girlfriend. Her name was Paloma. She went on to become Palmolive, the drummer in the punk rock band The Slits. And Strummer, well, he went on to form The Clash, the only band that matters, as they were called at one point. In 1981, The Clash actually played three concerts in Spain, which was recovering from decades of authoritarian rule under Franco. And young people there were hungry for punk rock, says Nick Hall. The Clash were, were huge in Spain. There was a really important scene at the time in particularly Madrid, but I know Barcelona also. And there was a lot of kind of this post-punk new wave stuff influenced by British bands. But behind the scenes, as the saying goes, all was not well with the band. Come on, it's The Clash. What did you expect? In the early 80s, says Nick Hall, Strummer oversaw the disintegration of the band. He fired his sidekick and co-writer Mick Jones and then he fled to Granada. The Granada thing is is to escape the problems he's created in London and kind of goes to Granada for a bit of peace and quiet, I think, and to pick up old relationships, friendships he has there. Strummer, you see, had once shared another London squat with another Spaniard, a guy who had gone back to Granada and become a medical doctor. This guy takes Joe out one night where he meets a local band. That band was called 091, and they couldn't believe that in the audience was the Joe Strummer. This, you know, the punk rock warlord, as he self-styled. And he ends up going to rehearsals and becomes the producer for their second album. Here's a track off the original vinyl, a Strummer-produced song called In La Calle, In the Street. To be honest, 091 didn't last much longer as a band. Of course, neither did The Clash. They broke up for good in 1986. Strummer, though, kept returning to Spain. He even ended up, like many Brits, buying a house on Spain's southern coast. Strummer died of heart failure in 2002. A year later, The Clash was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Strummer is still fondly remembered in Granada. Last year, a group of local friends and journalists petitioned the city to name a square in his honor. The measure is expected to be approved next month, according to a city official. A local newspaper recently wrote, Good old Joe traveled to Granada, seduced by stories of the Civil War, the killing of Lorca, and the image of Granada. One could add, and to get the hell away from the clash, Plaza Joe Strummer will, if all goes according to plan, be just a few hundred yards from the Alhambra. Such is life. For the world, this is Clark Boyd. We've got some pictures of Joe Strummer in Granada at theworld.org. That's where you can also find a trailer for Nick Hall's upcoming film about Strummer's time in Spain. All really cool stuff, especially for you Clash fans out there. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We're on the trail of illegal smugglers for our GeoQuiz today, and the hunt shouldn't be too hard. It's got a strong odor. We're not talking drugs or endangered wildlife. We're talking garlic. Some recent arrests have drawn attention to a case involving a massive garlic smuggling operation into Europe, which got us to thinking, who smuggles garlic and why? Well, David Murphy investigates trade customs fraud for the European Anti-Fraud Office in Brussels. And David, when did garlic start attracting criminals? Well, I think ever since it became profitable to do so. With garlic, I think it started around 2001, when we introduced a particularly high rate of duty for the product. And that just pushed smugglers to think, hey, if the tariff is so high, we can bring the price down and make a little money on the side. Exactly. This is the way it works. If you create an incentive to fraud and if you apply a high rate of import duty, well, then you do create that incentive. And that does attract a certain type of enterprising um, operator, yes. Well, Sweden recently issued international arrest warrants for two men suspected of illegally importing $13 million worth of garlic into the EU via Norway. Trace the route the smuggled garlic traveled. It would have come by a variety of routes uh, from China into Norway. The attraction of coming across from Norway to Sweden is that the controls are quite light and the goods just transferred across the frontier between the two countries. We also have misdescription. So they import the garlic, but they do not declare it as garlic. They declare it as onions. And by doing so, the importers can avoid paying the high uh, duty rates. Um, So there's quite a variety of options open to the operators, and they exploit all of them. And how does an investigation on a case of smuggled garlic compare to, say, an investigation on guns or or drugs? Is it, you know, you come into the office another day on the garlic case? (laughs) You make it sound so interesting, yeah? (laughs) Um, I I think it it might be. Well, well, it is interesting. It's not as sexy as, as dealing with guns or drugs, and it doesn't stimulate the same level of media interest. The big difference between, say, narcotics or gun smuggling and garlic smuggling is that the garlic leaves a commercial trail, um, and not just because of the odor. Any of these goods which we investigate have to move commercially. They will be described as garlic, for example, leaving China. So we can trace it through shipping records in the countries through which it passes, and we can, in that way, establish the origin of the goods Well, garlic may not be as sexy as drugs or gun smuggling, but this radio program bit. David Murphy with the European Anti-Fraud Office in Brussels helping us out with the answer to our geo-quiz today, which is China. David, thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. With all the bleak and unsettling news happening around the globe, it may seem like bad taste for us to talk about murder ballads, but bear with me. You see, in Finland, there's a long tradition of singing about murders, and a Finnish duo calling itself Murder Ballads recently recorded a CD full of songs about murder. Here's a sample from one of the tracks. Kimo Poyonen is one half of Murder Ballads. He's the accordion player. So first of all, um, the, the, the word in Finnish, uh, Kimo, uh, is morhabaladea. So w- what is this tradition of murder ballads in Finland, or is it a tradition that you've kind of made up? For centuries in Finland, we have had songs about murders based on either fact or fiction. And, and we just made a concert where we wanted to collect all kind of songs which are somehow related to murders. 
and it, it got really huge success here in Finland. So then we had to make, make a CD. A lot of the songs on here uh, under the uh, composition credits are, are traditional. So how far back does uh, this murder ballad tradition go? I think it goes back a couple of hundred years. When I was a young boy, I used to sing songs about, you know, hey, you stab you, this other guy and I, I can marry his beautiful wife. So uh, that's a funny thing in Finland that even even children, they sing these horrible songs here in Finland. <laughs> I mean, presumably uh, there had to be a lot of murders for a song culture to develop around the idea uh, of murder songs. Was Finland an especially violent country when these songs evolved? I guess in old days there was lots of fights and I guess in every cultural certain time <laughs> before uh, cultural change to nowadays picture which is a little bit different but at least in old days you know there was even a saying that if there was a wedding and three people were not killed it wasn't a good wedding. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I guess the culture was a little bit different in old days. Mm. Nowadays people appreciate their life a bit more. So as for this album, it's not exactly feel-good music, especially when you read through the lyrics. But let's take one song uh, that, that is traditional, which you've updated. I'm going to let you pronounce it. I know the first word is rekilauluja. Yep, it's a rekilauluja murhamiehistä. Let's have a quick listen to it, and then we'll talk about the tune. Mustalla mäellä hallin välillä posti tapettiin Juuri samalla paikalla se Janne ammuttiin Kaharella toista kiväärillä se ammuttiin läpi Kaikki, jotka siinä paikalla oli, niin itkivät kun so, Kimo, just to illustrate the violence in this song, two quick verses go, it was on a black hill on the road to Hali that the postman was killed at exactly the same spot where Yanni was shot. He was shot full of holes. There were 12 rifles that did it, and all the people who were present were weeping at the sight. Fairly bloody, not too bad, uh, but there are about a dozen verses there that are in a similar tone. In the song, who is the main character? Who's talking? Actually, there is a storyteller who is telling about different fights or different ways how people used to stab each or fight each with each others. In a way, the, at this song, it's told kind of Finnish black or dark type of humor. It's told by a funny way. It's not so serious thing. Uh, in this song, there's some kind of admiration towards to these guys. So was yeah. the was the intent of some of these songs at least to glorify murder? In a way, there is always been some kind of admiration towards these guys and it's a it's a strange thing but maybe some by you know some kind of idea that by you know by singing uh, about something the fear may recede a little maybe that's one way or or but anyway in old days the murderers they they were heroes i remember when i was a small boy i keep them as kind of you know good guys it's a strange thing accordion player kimo poyonen who is one half of morhabaladea got at that time. The album is called Mora Baladea, or Murder Ballads. Kimo, thank you so much. Thanks. Se päivä oli ihana, kun Elben virran rannalla Kaaro ja Kerttu käveli ja onnestansa uneksi. By the way, on the cover of the Murder Ballad CD, there's a fascinating picture of two notorious 19th century criminals in Finland who killed a lot of people. Check that out at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. 
We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.